Hello there and welcome to our podcast, Conversations in Noosa. My name is John Caruso. Giuseppe Palumbo, together with Morgan Williams, were instrumental in introducing Australian music fans to electronic, dance, trance and funk music as early as the 70s. They went on to form Central Station Records, leveraging a clothing range off the brand and battling to have Australian copyright laws changed along the way. My father left Italy when he was 19 years of age. In 1952, Sicily, where he was from, was economically depressed, and my dad left looking for greener pastures and the opportunity to make a new life for himself. What was Italy like 15 years later in 1967, when Giuseppe decided to leave, and why did his family travel to Australia? In this podcast, we'll hear about arranged marriages, the emerging dance music culture in Australia, and Giuseppe Palumbo's passion for protecting the environment. We started talking about exactly where he grew up in Italy. Middle, Abruzzi. Rome was about two hours' drive, straight underneath the tunnel. Pescara Way, 7,000 people, all stuck in the hills, you know, those little um, old setups, you know, amazing place. We'll talk about your journey from Italy to, to Australia. That was an interesting one, actually, because we arrived in Naples uh, with a little black Fiat and, uh, <laughs> and there was uh, an afternoon and the, boat, the big boat, the Achille Laro, was ready to go. And the Australian customs, um, that one by one, we had to go through it, it checked out health checkup. So the guy made me lie down and he checked me out and then he decided to give me injections. And I said, I already had those ones. He said, no, we don't trust the, Australian, um, uh, the Italian authorities, so we are going to give you ours. So they gave me yellow fever, all the other <laughs> smallpox and whatever. It was the 11th of November, 1967. The next port uh, was Messina. Then they went towards the Suez Canal. Suddenly, I felt that the boat was going around, 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 and I, I sneaked up to the tower where the captain was illegally of course and uh, I, I was looking at the telex machines going like that and, and I said hang on there is a boat sunk in the Suez Canal, war, Israel Egypt, unable to cross and suddenly I felt this cold hand on my shoulder what are you doing here? <laughs> I said captain we're going around the, the, the bend, what's going on? he said well you read it we waited for instructions from Genoa to tell us if to proceed to Gibraltar yes. or go back and all you off, off back to Naples and forget the trip. Basically, we're waiting for 10,000 US dollars from Genoa to pay the British at Gibraltar. So the next stop was Malta, Valletta, beautiful little town, narrow streets, horses, horse shit everywhere. Um, <laughs> And uh, Coca-Cola only and Fanta, there was no alcohol. And uh, it was a beautiful stay, one night. And then we refueled and ate uh, water, whatever, extra food, uh, Gibraltar. We arrived about midnight, it was dark. Suddenly you hear lights going on, clack, 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 throughout. And all this, and the captain with a briefcase full of cash, stepping down, look, tick, 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 down. I could remember it, it was amazing. I can't forget that. And suddenly all these old British soldiers with machine guns, like 20 of them, all line up 
And so the capital went out, paid the money, and we were allowed to go through Gibraltar. The next step was Canary Islands. I was 17. Very innocent, you know. As soon as we got the boat, all these people tried to sell me bootleg cigarettes, bootleg fake Jesus Christ images. Heresy. I couldn't believe it. You know, I'm a good Christian boy. You know, I was that anyway. <laughs> uh, so it was funny. The next stop was... Um, Cape Town. Yes. Cape Town was amazing. The captain said, now you're not allowed to go to the black neighborhood. You stay with the whites and so forth. So knowing myself, the first thing I did is run off and went straight to the black neighborhood and discovered the apartheid system where the whites were allowed on the second floor up and the blacks only on the ground floor yes. and basements. I had, of course, no alcohol. I had uh, coffee was pretty terrible. Uh, Fanta and Coca-Cola, that's all. So I went to the railway station and uh, walked by myself. It was very late at night, and there was very small trains. No, not big. There was blacks only, whites only. So they had two stations for everything, you know. After that was Fremantle. Uh, we arrived in Fremantle. Yeah. The first thing I wanted to do is to have a milkshake. Everybody talked about <laughs> a milkshake. So I had a milkshake, and I vomited <laughs> All of it for hours and end. You know. After that was Melbourne, and we were carted away by this Italian family where my sisters were the precious cargo. Three of my sisters were young. So you travelled with your siblings? Still virgin. Yeah. And um, they were kind of prearranged. But my sister would not have it, so we got into trouble right away with the people that helped us to get into Australia. So part of that part of that journey was because there was a prearranged arrangement with your sisters. Correct. To marry two other Italian gentlemen back in Australia? Three. Three. Right. And did that did that go ahead? No. No. No, we my sister we 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 were educated. We had education. We were uh, progressive. We we, <laughs> we <laughs> went down part of arranged <laughs> marriages. <laughs> so <laughs> So knowing that now Giuseppe was that part of the reason for your journey to Australia? Because my dad came out to Australia from Sicily in 52, 1952 at 19. But the reason for him for leaving Italy is because of the extreme poverty. And they, they were looking for somewhere better. But in 1967, what was, what was the main reason for you leaving? Well, it, my father had trouble getting jobs, but my father always had trouble getting jobs. His attitude was right. We were just talking in the car before. Uh, a friend of my father who arranged pre-marriage, said to my dad, come to Australia, we help you uh, with your family. And my father, being what he was, no jobs in Italy because, you know, he ran out of ideas. So we all went together. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we were invited to come to Australia. Because, don't forget that in that time, there were... 120 miles for 100 females. So there was a huge shortage of females. And also the migrants, especially from Italy, they preferred to marry their own kind. They, as the, the Australians didn't sort of mix very well at that time with, uh, with the migrants. What did you do off the bat when you landed there? Did you, were you involved in the, the kind of music? You had an interest in bands or live music? What was... I'm trying to track, you know, the, the progression. I into- always wanted to be a singer. And I always, like Pavarotti style, you know, that kind of singing. Operatic. Yeah. 
but uh, I, I tried to learn to play the piano and the guitar, but no time. I had to study all the time because as we were kind of not very poor, but we didn't have sufficient resources. So I had to work. I was only a young man. For, I, I've been working since the age of eight, nine, uh, killing chickens, uh, cleaning them up, selling them, packing bottles uh, in a brewery factory where we used to make beer and lemonades, cutting boxes, you name it, lots of different jobs, helping my grandpa in the uh, cultivating food. I learned a lot from him. He was a wonderful man. And um, So how long was it before you met Morgan and then kind of the launch of Central Station Records? Oh, that happened much later. I think we launched Central Station around the 1975. Okay. So about- and I met Morgan around the 1983. Uh, it was more a necessity for me to meet Morgan than actually wanting a partner. Right. Because I wanted to be by myself all my life because I, I suppose I'm a difficult character and I... <laughs> And I, I didn't want to. I could have got married to a uh, to woman, but uh, I just didn't want to destroy their lives because my life was tormented. Because I was angry at the system. I was angry at Italy that ki- rich kids got education and poor kids got kicked in the butt and no, nothing else. The, the rich kids were given books. We were given nothing. You got they they get. They get jobs that are useless. The brains are useless, and they get jobs. And I and the smart ones they get backwards, you know. So that anger carried on, still with me in many ways. Today, yeah, still. Even today, yeah. <laughs> but I'm interested in the, in the formation of the label and getting that business off the ground. So how did that kind of partnership? How did it start? Because you were you're doing a lot of manual labour. So I get that it was tough. Well, we were basically a retailer, and yeah. I imported vinyl from USA initially, and. Uh, and that got me into a lot of trouble because I was breaking the copyright law, which prohibited importations of vinyl or music, it pro- prohibited books and films. So it was a crime, a criminal act, and I could face jail for having done so. In the process of getting litigations, uh, a summons from various recording companies, once a week sometimes, for one piece of record, one piece of vinyl. So I was in a dilemma where I already started campaigning every politician in the country. Whoever was interested, I used to write letters and say, look, the copyright law is not right. We've got to change this. New Zealand has got, got it right. Why can't Australia have the same legislation where we can import, parallel import, products? The night that I met Morgan... It was a night where I I was exhausted because I was fighting rich companies. And I need somebody to help me with my writing because uh, my writing at the time was still very kind of mixed up Italians, English. Sure. Uh, so I need somebody that had a good write. And I met Morgan that night. And uh, I, I, I love the English language. It's my favorite. Uh, and uh, I saw his writing and I saw uh, a lot of richness and cons- concise writing. That's what I wanted. Somebody could express my thoughts, not in 50 pages, but in one page. And he was able to do so. So the first time I gave him quite a lot of money to write a little thesis, uh, and they co- they, uh, which we had to give to every member of parliament. And it, it was named the Red Book. It had a red cover. <laughs> so it explained 
to the politicians how the copyright law interfered with the market, uh, monopolies, um, price control, uh, copyrights, uh, and trademarks, and so forth. So it's a quite a it's about forty pages of of analysis of the music industry at that time. It was well received by Professor Alan Fells that uh, he took up the case for us. And uh, from there on, Morgan and I kept writing hundreds of letters practically every second week to every member of parliament expressing our and it disappointment that the law was holding back hundreds of Australian businesses because, like myself, we there were other companies like myself importing different type of music, like psychedelic, uh, rock, um, heavy metal. We were specifically into dance music. And did those laws change? Yes, yes, we did. It took, took us 20 years. I thank Peter Costello for that, Alan Fells, and many other people in the law. We had support from legal side of the law. That what gave me the courage to continue fighting and and writing and I must say that Paul Keating understood the issues but he took the side of uh, Australian artists which were told that the copyright law protected their work and the money was it was the other way around where the multinationals were only interested in promoting overseas acts especially from the USA because it was easy for them to take a finished product and like Madonna, like Prince, yeah. uh, like George Benson and the likes. Back in the 70s and 80s, disco in the 70s, the kind of rise of punk, pop music in the 80s. And here were you guys importing electronic dance. Talk about that industry and that, that genre of music slowly growing and how you helped that along. And also innovative in that you had a line of clothing as well, is that right? Correct, yeah. yeah. Well, look, it happened like this. I, a lot of people were encouraging me to go to the States and go through warehouses. But the promotional products that we call 12-inch singles was a promotional tool. It wasn't a commercial tool. Only when we started to import large quantities, it become a money-making uh, product. Before, it was just used as a promotional tool for radio stations and DJs. And most American DJs, when they finished with that, they normally give it back to a pool and get new ones. So I contacted this company in Miami that had, it was a pool for DJ uh, organization. And he said, oh, I have thousands of boxes full of vinyl, don't know what's in it. I said, do you mind if I go through them all? And he said, sure, go. And I picked up something like eight to 9,000 pieces of black music, albums, vinyl. I didn't even know. As long as I could, you can tell, you can tell. It's, it's, it's not soul, R&B. Those days was funk, wasn't electronica, was more disco, dance. Yeah. I picked up amazing stuff, you know, I can't remember the names, but really black artists, beautiful, beautiful product. I bought the whole lot, bought back into Australia, by boat, because flying was too expensive. I didn't have a chance to even open the boxes. There was queues outside my shop in Windsor, in Melbourne, 77 Chapel Street, 
Windsor. <laughs> uh, it was quite incredible. All these, like 50, 60 people all got in and ripped the boxes apart and within a week or two, all sold out. How were you promoting yourselves at that stage? Like, how did these people know that you were, you were coming back with a, with, a, with a boatload of, of, you know, music that you these guys had You just have to tell one or two DJs and yeah. it, it spread like... Wildfire. Wildfire. Yeah. Viral, viral. No, we, but I also had a friend at Channel 7. That time, Channel 7 started to broadcast from 1 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning movies, black and white movies. Anyway, so he said, come to me. He said, look, we, 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 we can give you a lot of commercials between 1 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock. It's, it's cheap. And they're cheap. Because yeah. <laughs> we were trying to launch this new... See, nobody, because at that time nobody nobody watches television at that time of the night, you know. Everything. Except the people that are probably interested in electronic and dance music. <laughs> well, I don't, I've done some very funny ads, you know. We used to be called G's to Central Station Records. We got the dance music with the best place, you know. And my God, it just, it was, it went off. It just was the best thing I could have done. And we ran ads like, it was very cheap, like $10 for a time, which is ridiculous stuff, you know. That's how we got going, really. They- now, what happened in 2009? Central Station Records was bought over by the Ministry of Sound. Is that right? No. No? No, 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 no. Uh, the, what we've done is because uh, we're getting old and also I always felt that the best way to progress in life is to delegate some of your authorities to the people that are capable, younger people. Otherwise, they go somewhere else. You've got to give them a hand. So we decided to divide our businesses in two systems, one for the clothing and one for the music. The clothing side, we give somebody half the business and in the music we divided with Jamie Rabin, uh, who was managing the label for us at the time, and Tim McGee, also running Ministry of Sound. So it's a separate identity. So we formed a separate company where Central Stations was relaunched as a new label, mm-hmm. same stuff, same product, and uh, it was very successful because Jamie Rabin, amazing guy, amazing guy. Do you still have uh, kind of your finger in the pie in terms of any merchandising and, and shirts and clothing and music? Do you still kind of play around in that? We in that give our opinion. We, yeah. we, we, we give, but they, no, no. I think that we, they got your... They got the authority to do what they like, and and uh, they do very well. There's no need for us. The only thing I do watch is the bank account, the future. <laughs> uh, make sure that they go in the right direction in in the formats. We're working with virtual reality at the moment, so that's something. And on the clothing side, we developing our own labels. I, I suggest that no one should retire. <laughs> we should die working. I want to talk about your connection to Noosa now. So when did you move to Black Mountain? When did you, and why did you to choose South East Queensland? A friend of ours uh, used to run the Midnight Shift uh, Club in, in Sydney, he invited us to his place in Boring Point here. And at the time, we the music industry was going through a dramatic change. Uh, sales were dropping, the internet, bootlegging, downloading. It wasn't exciting. It was a period where the music was dull, and so I was becoming dull. So we moved here because the weather was nice. Uh, it was sunshine every day, and, and I, I, I like warm weather. I love that. I love the heat. But one thing is something to do with destiny. When I was a child, I always felt for the environment. 
I saw destruction in Italy. I saw people throwing everything into the rivers. Pollution, destruction, highways, chopping trees. It really depressed me. And uh, so when we bought this property in Queensland, it was 500 acres of bush. And the first thought for us was preserving it for the animals, which we do. We are doing that now. We give it back to nature. Uh, we made a deal with the council and state government, uh, voluntary surrender, they call it. And uh, so there cannot be no development of the land, no power lines, no highways, no future houses. So that portion of the land in Black Mountain, some of it is virgin forest. And we have uh, one of the large selections of birds, reptiles, plants. How much time do you spend there? Oh, about 70%, 75% of our time, 80% sometimes. You still travel a lot? Always yes, we do travel. You, yeah. you enjoy traveling? quite a bit because yeah. our business is still done there. We go overseas. Morgan loves going overseas. We like to go to countries that give us some inspirations, like India, example, uh, South America. We go to Europe from time to time. Do you go, Europe, you go back to Italy much? Yes, I do. But Family there? I think that Europe is looking tired. They need a break. They need a, they need a renaissance. They need some rejuvenation. Just Italy or, or Europe as The whole so. Europe. <laughs> I, Portugal is still exciting. Yeah. Portugal is still exciting. But Italy looks very tired. France, preoccupied. Spain is overtaken by too many tourists. And when you go to Barcelona, you see signs, tourists, please go home. So you don't feel welcome. England, London looks very tight as well. So it kind of... What do you think is going to happen to the music industry as a whole and, and, and record labels and the promotion of music, especially with digital platforms like Apple Music and Spotify and Pandora, which doesn't exist in Australia anymore, but, but is still you know a healthy business overseas? Well, in many ways, it's helping because we don't have the waste of CDs. It's a product. You have to have the product into retail stores. It's costly. It's environmentally unfriendly. So uh, and so Spotify and iTunes and the likes. Um, the music it, it doesn't seem to have the same flavour as when you put a look at the, something. There's an an element missing when you touch give something. You that much, yeah. yeah, but you and I were talking about how we never thought we'd pay a monthly subscription to to stream music, but we do. And I don't know. But I enjoy doing it because I discover new music. Do you enjoy doing it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I I just love going through the vinyl. It's, Smell. The, That's right. The, the, they have a smell. They, they have a color. <laughs> they have a feel. You can tell from the cover what sort of music is in it. Now it's all cold, kind of cold yeah. coming out of... Uh, you met my eight-year-old son before. I showed him a 33 and a third uh, many years ago. He had no idea how they get sound out of it because I don't even have a record player. So he does, you know, there's no concept of how the sound comes off of that black piece of vinyl that's kind of sad the analog <laughs> the analog is it's, it's wonderful <clears throat> it's complete whereas that digital is like zero one zero one it's a dot in between so there's a gap obviously i use got used to the mp3 files and the lower quality that's right it's a lower quality for yeah. sure but kind of ears have adapted to that now so we just have to stay there unless uh, there are different type of music um, uh, 
uh, would you say, delivery format, but that's too expensive and too slow. So we just have to wait for that. Is there anything that, that you haven't achieved um, in your lifetime that, that you want to achieve, that you'd love to do or you, ha- you haven't had a chance to do? Oh, I, I love to run the state of New South Wales and just uh, that state uh, and Queensland <laughs> and Queensland. Uh, there's so much to do. Uh, I think they're all missing out on what uh, the society needs: uh, efficient and cheap public transport. I would like to see decriminalizations of all drugs, like the Portugal has done. It cut consumption, cut crime, it cut uh, infections. Uh, it, it's been amazingly successful. Uh, cut consumption of hard drugs like ice. I see all these country towns in in, in New South Wales and Queensland uh, and the uh, abuse of uh, hard drugs. It's just not, it shouldn't be that way. So you, you've got an interest in politics, state politics? Yes, I do. I do. Well, our paths first crossed um, when you, got, you and Morgan were handing out some flyers at local government election. So you, you felt strongly enough that, that you wanted to volunteer? Uh, oh, yes, for- we volunteer. We yeah. helped uh, um, Tony Wellington, uh, Tony Wellington, Wellington yeah, at uh, Shah. He's a wonderful man. He's pro-environment. He, he loves nature. He loves plants. He loves, he loves the area. So he's the right person for the job. And uh, unfortunately, the state government of Queensland needs to, to do more that they are doing. There are so many things they can do, including public liability insurance, for example. It holds a lot of business back. Public liability insurance should be no fault, no claim, like Japan has and New Zealand has. I can't believe that New Zealanders are so far ahead of us in many ways. Well, the New Zealand economy these days is, is booming. I think it's well, the it first is. time in 20 years that there are more Aussies going that way than Kiwis coming this way. And uh, now they've got a great economy at the moment. Uh, Giuseppe, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Wasn't that a great chat? Giuseppe Palumbo there. And if you enjoyed that, feel free to rate and review the podcast if you're listening via iTunes, Stitcher or Wooshka. And don't forget to share the podcast with family and friends on your social media outlets. Remember, we've got fresh podcasts for you every Monday and Thursday. Simply head over to innoosamagazine.com.au forward slash conversations.